0: and intentions to moral agents, um, both when these agents are individual people, uh, but also when these individuals form collectives of people like uh, groups. And so here I hope to touch upon issues of group mind, group think, and group consciousness. Uh, And then also, how do we attribute uh, free will to moral agents? Uh, And here I want to look at this question in the context of coercion when agents are forced to do things that they don't want to do um, in an interpersonal context but also uh, intrapersonal uh, crashes like uh, Maureen talked about yesterday so internal conflict when an agent isn't sure of what to do Uh, like Regina I will start with uh, the trolley problem which is actually where I started um, both in philosophy and psychology Um, and this is going to bring us to that first topic of how we attribute mind to moral agents, so I don't need to run you through the possible differences here or the possible kinds of debunking arguments that have been offered by psychologists like Josh Green um, and others, Um, but what I found interesting about this case was that when I was an undergrad in philosophy um, with Francis, we went through um, what seemed like hundreds of iterations of these kinds of cases to figure out what could be the normatively relevant distinctions, and around that time, Josh was beginning to do some of his uh, psychology and neuroscience research, suggesting that what we thought were the relevant distinctions between these kinds of cases um, weren't, in fact, the kinds of considerations that our neural processes were actually sensitive to. So instead of uh, the difference being something like the difference between foreseen harm and intended harm, perhaps it was something like emotional considerations, and this gets us back to Auntie's talk uh, yesterday morning, um, where it could be some combination of those two. That's not something that I'm gonna be concerned with here. Um, And in fact, what this led me to do um, in my research is to look not at the difference between intended harm and foreseen harm, but rather um, a less subtle distinction that has to do with intention, and that's the distinction between intentional harm and accidental harm. Um, I should also say that um, for this talk, I'm gonna be presenting a bunch of data, and so if you have questions about anything, feel free to just raise those during the talk itself rather than waiting till the end. Okay, but before going on um, to the main event there, I just wanted to flag that some of my early work was consistent with uh, the kind, the kinds of research that Josh and colleagues did, and the the kind of research that's been mentioned. Um, and again, that what that body of research um, served to do, uh, spearheaded by Josh, is to suggest that there might be these other psychological considerations at play that help us to distinguish between these kinds of cases, the sidetrack case and the footbridge case, and so on, um, like emotional considerations and when emotional processes are uh, damaged, as in the case of certain kinds of patients with uh, lesions uh, parts of their brain, like the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Um, We might see deficits in the ability to make these distinctions. Um, Similarly, more recently with a colleague of mine, um, we've looked at the kind of emotional processes that might be at stake here. So not just any kind of emotion, but in particular empathic concern. Um, And so what some of the preliminary data suggests here is that um, people who in particular lack empathic concern are more likely to judge both of these kinds of cases um, in a utilitarian fashion. Um, but again, that's not gonna be the focus uh, today. So instead what I wanna focus on and what I wanted to do is figure out whether a difference like the difference between intended, uh, intentional harm and accidental harm uh, This is a difference that even, say, utilitarians or consequentialists uh, endorse upon reflection, perhaps, um, is a distinction that we can study uh, from a psychological and a neurological perspective. Um, And one way that I got from here to here is by listening to consequentialists like uh, Josh and others talk about these cases. Um, And in talking about these cases, Some of them talk about them like one would talk about, say, the Mueller-Lyer illusion, that really it's an illusion to see these cases as different from each other, because in both cases, the person knows what they're doing, they intend to uh, save five people at the expense of one person, Um, and it's that knowledge and intent that really got my attention, that what makes those cases the same um, to the utilitarian perspective is that someone knows what they're doing, they know that they're killing one person um, and saving five people. Um, and so what I wanted to do was study that distinction uh, further, but in the sort of more robust context. So um, these are just cartoon illustrations of intentional harm and accidental harm. Um, so in one case, uh, somebody intentionally poisons her friend, in the other case, she does so by accident by mistaking some uh, powdery substance uh, for sugar, even though it's really poison. It's worth noting that um, even forgetting about the consequences, just plain intent matters. So if someone attempts to cause some harm but fails to do so because it's time they think uh, what sugar is actually poison, um, we still hold them accountable. We still judge them to be blameworthy and we still want to punish them and so on. Um, and so it's this kind of distinction of intent that really uh, caught my attention. So again, um, I think most of us have the intuition, and indeed all of our subjects have the intuition, that um, for the most part, accidents are forgivable. Even when we don't fully forgive uh, someone for causing an accident, we try to do so. We recognize why one would want to forgive someone for causing an accident. Um, And similarly, we'll blame someone for trying to cause harm, um, even if no actual harm is caused. Uh, so, again, what I wanted to do initially was just to see um, whether we could study this distinction, how we make this distinction, um, whether, in fact, uh, when we think we're making this distinction across cases, there is independent psychological and neural evidence to suggest that we are, in fact, making this distinction and enough it's not some other factor floating around that's driving um, our consideration here. So... Um, What we've uh, found recently is that the brain regions that help us understand people's intentions in non-moral contexts are also the ones that are recruited for when we're trying to think about other people's mental states when we're making moral evaluations of their judgments. So I'm just showing you an image here of uh, the network of brain regions that help us do this. Um, There are a bunch listed here. The one that I want to focus on and, and have been is The one up here, the RTPJ, or the right temporal parietal junction, which is right above and behind uh, your right ear. Um, And so, what uh, many other researchers have found um, is that the RTPJ is selectively recruited for mental state reasoning, thinking about other people's thoughts, beliefs, desires, and intentions um, in non moral contexts, too. So, for thinking, uh, for predicting, and explaining other people's. Behavior. Um, It's important to note that this region is selective for processing mental states as opposed to just any socially relevant information like a person's physical appearance, what they look like, how they feel, and so on. Um, It's specific to representational mental states um, and not attention to just anything. Um, And also, like I said recently, we've begun to look at how this region uh, is recruited, how this region responds when people are engaged in moral evaluations, and I'm not gonna go through the details here again, this isn't really the focus of the talk uh, today, but just to give you a sense of what the RTPJ does, the RTPJ is responsible for processing mental states, both in an encoding uh, and integration process, so encoding uh, the initial information when you read about what someone thinks or believes, Um, in inferring that information. So if you read a moral scenario, and there's no information about the mental state, but the scenario requires you to think about what someone could be thinking, then the RTPJ uh, comes online. Um, Also for integrating that information with other information that might be morally relevant, so sometimes, um, particularly in the case of an accident or an attempt, there's a conflict between inputs, so someone could have a good intention but produce a bad outcome, you need to integrate those uh, inputs together to form a moral judgment, the RTPJ helps you do this. Um, and even for reevaluating uh, post-hoc uh, mental state uh, status after a moral judgment has been made. So um, in some cases you might uh, make a moral judgment of an agent, say someone who, say that person who accidentally poisoned their friend, I mentioned at the beginning that you might not want to fully forgive that person, and one of the reasons why you don't is that um, you might actually think back and think well they should have known that the stuff was poisoned, they should have looked more closely um, and so that re-evaluation of the mental state um, shows up in a peak in the RTPJ response after a moral judgment has been made. I know that's kind of a, um, a lot of information but the basic point here is that the brain regions that help us think about mental states and non-moral judgments are also um, recruited during moral assessments as well. Uh, just to follow that empirical thread a little bit further, Um, and again, this is just a sketch here, but recently we've looked at uh, how and why uh, moral judgments can go awry when these neural mechanisms are disrupted. Uh, And so recently we've shown that using a method, a neuromodulatory method called transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, we've seen that Disrupting activity in this region also disrupts the use of mental states for moral judgments. Um, It's a really subtle but significant effect here. Um, And again, just to walk you through those important conditions again, um, accidental harms are characterized by good intentions and bad outcomes for the most part. Attempts are characterized by bad intentions and good outcomes. And what I'm showing you here is that when activity in this region is disrupted, people's moral judgments are based more on the outcomes relatively speaking. So in the case of an attempt, someone will judge an attempt as more permissible, more okay, because of the disruption to their ability to process the good intention. We see a similar pattern in high-functioning autism, which is characterized by cognitive impairments in this ability to process mental state information, like people's thoughts, beliefs, and desires. Um, And in particular, what we see here is that High, extremely high-functioning individuals with autism uh, show more outcome-based judgments of accidental harm. So again, they're basing their moral judgment relatively more on information about the bad outcome and thinking a little bit less about the good intention. Uh, interestingly, we've found the opposite pattern in the case of prison inmates with a clinical diagnosis of psychopathy. So like I showed you here, um, individuals with autism judge accidents to be more forbidden. We see the opposite pattern here with psychopaths. Psychopaths judge accidents to be more permissible. Um, And what we take this pattern to reflect is an almost hyper-rational intent-based moral judgment in the case of an accident. So I keep coming back to this tension uh, with respect to accidents, which is that We find it difficult to fully forgive an accident even though we think that we should, especially in cases where there was no way an agent could have known otherwise. Um, And part of the reason why it might be difficult to forgive an accident is because a lot of us have this gut emotional response to some harm that's been done even though it was done by accident. But in the case where that gut response is absent, like in the case of psychopathy, uh, then we might actually see more intent-based moral judgments with respect to the average uh, subject, and that's the pattern that we see. And so again, I don't think that this pattern here is due to more sensitivity to mental state information in the case of psychopathy, but rather less uh, emotional response uh, to the harm and suffering of the victim of the accident. Uh, And then finally, uh, uh, we've seen yet a different pattern in patients with... uh, focal lesions to the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. So these are those same patients um, who ran through the, the footbridge and the side track cases and indeed the full range of those trolley type scenarios and we ran um, a subset of those same patients through this paradigm here varying the dimensions of intent and outcome. And what we found was a a really striking uh, pattern of judgment in the case of failed attempts to harm. So what you can see here in this graph is that the NPC lesion patients are judging attempted harms including uh, failed murder attempts as much more permissible. And this is the one pattern um, here of judgment where there's actually a reversal of the normal pattern of moral judgment. So they're actually judging failed attempts to harm as better than accidental harms, right? So that's a reversal there. And uh, one account of this possible uh, pattern is that VMPC patients also show show abnormal emotional processing of abstract information, and to the extent that mental state information is abstract, you can't see it or feel it or or touch it, um, VMPC patients are showing a relative inability to respond to that kind of information emotionally. And of course, having to judge a failed murder attempt as bad requires you to respond to that abstract mental state content to be able to tell that that's not okay even though no actual harm was done. So again, I'm showing you all of these complicated patterns to give you a sense of the cognitive and neural um, inputs that go into our, our intuitive moral judgments, but the basic point that I wanna make here is just a really simple one which is that intentions matter for moral judgments. There's no evidence in psychology or neuroscience to suggest otherwise. Of course, I'm not making any positive uh, normative point here either, I'm not saying that there's anything in this evidence to suggest that we should take mental state information into account, only that there isn't any similar sort of debunking argument um, like there may or may not be in the case of intended harm and foreseen harm. But for the most part, intentions matter, and they matter robustly in our moral judgments, and there's lots of evidence to support that fact. Okay, so I should say that the talk that I usually give focuses um, on when mental states don't matter for moral judgment. So if that's something that you're also interested in, you can ask me about that at the end. But what I'm gonna do now is move on to how instead we attribute minds to uh, groups or collectives. Um, Like I suggested at the beginning, um, if mental state reasoning is important for interacting uh, with individuals, evaluating individuals, then you might think mental state reasoning comes in handy no matter who you're interacting with, whether that who is a single individual or a group of individuals. Um, This is work that I did with a colleague at the Kellogg School of Management, Adam Waits. Um, And what we wanted to do, uh, again, is to see how we attribute minds to groups um, and what are the consequences of attributing minds to groups. Uh, This is a fairly controversial topic, both in psychology and also uh, philosophy. Uh, and also um, in politics. So recently, the uh, United States Supreme Court granted corporations the right to donate to uh, political campaigns, effectively granting them personhood, Uh, but Justice Stevens noted in dissent, corporations have no consciences, no beliefs, no feelings, no thoughts, and and no desires. Um, This was the take on the Colbert Report um, so the survey asks, in order to address the matter of corporate personhood, they franchise people at Sovereign State of South Carolina, shall decree that um, A, uh, corporations are people, or B, only people are people. Um, and a lot of people would choose the, the second option, including the folks on um, my <laughs> Facebook feed a little while back. Um, and Mitt Romney discovered a similar uh, sentiment when he asserted corporations are people, Uh, my friend, and got promptly heckled at the Iowa State Fair. So it's an open question as to whether people think about groups as having minds as being like people, individual agents, um, and even what that means. So this is an empirical question, at least uh, that was our approach here. So what we did was present subjects with a set of 20 groups, uh, and we asked subjects to make judgments of uh, the extent to which each group has a mind, the extent to which each member of that group has a mind, and also we asked subjects to evaluate the cohesiveness of the group. Um, these are the instructions that they actually got. I'm not going to go through them, uh, but you can read them at your leisure. So what we found was a really interesting relationship between group mind and member mind. Um, those are the ratings sorted by uh, average group mind, um, and that's what we got for member mind. So what you can see here is that there is an inverse relationship between attributions of group mind and attributions of member mind. So groups that were thought to have lots of mind were also thought to have members with relatively little mind um, and the opposite. We also found that cohesiveness uh, tracked with group mind, so groups that were thought to be highly cohesive were also thought to have uh, relatively more mind. We replicated that basic finding in a set of different 20 groups Uh, But this time we also wanted to look at the consequences of attributing mind to a group. So we asked not just about group mind and member mind and cohesiveness like we did last time, but we also asked subjects to uh, rate uh, the extent to which each group is responsible for its collective actions um, and the extent to which each member of that group is responsible for his or her own individual actions. Um, and again, we found that same inverse relationship that we found before, groups that are judged to have lots of mind, or are thought to have members, with not very much mind, um, the same positive correlation between group mind and group cohesiveness. Um, and this time we also found a relationship between group mind and group responsibility. So groups that were thought to have lots of mind were also thought to be very responsible for their collective actions. <coughs> Uh, And perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, member responsibility judgments were at ceiling here. Everyone was thought to be responsible for their own individual actions. Um, Now these initial studies use verbal descriptions of uh, known or at least familiar groups, uh, which may have elicited preconceived notions of group mind or cohesiveness and so on. So what we wanted to do next was to use non-familiar groups and in particular uh, visual depictions of groups. So what we did here was uh, show people video animations of fish. Uh, High cohesion fish were shown to move jointly. Low cohesion fish moved disjointedly. And again, we elicited the same kinds of judgments of group mind, member mind, group responsibility, and member responsibility. And we found the same uh, basic uh, trade off here for group mind and member mind. Again, high cohesion groups were thought to have um, lots of mind and their members were thought to have less mind and we found that same basic pattern here, this time for uh, responsibility. So responsibility judgments patterned with uh, judgments of mind. Group, high cohesion groups that were thought to have lots of group mind were also thought to be highly responsible for their collective actions but individual members of those groups were thought to be not very responsible for their own individual actions. Okay, so um, that's a sketch of sort of some of the folk intuitions on how we attribute mind to uh, groups and also individuals. Um, but what's also interesting are instances in which individuals don't even have the chance to necessarily act intentionally or accidentally. Um, these are cases that I've looked at with a graduate student in philosophy at Yale, Jonathan Phillips. Um, cases of duress or coercion. So. If someone holds a gun to your head and tells you to do something, um, do you do it, can you be said to do it freely or are you rather just forced to do so? Um, This uh, work that I did with Jonathan was inspired by some of the work that he did with his advisor Josh Nobe, and that work was inspired by a case uh, by Aristotle uh, in which many of you may have heard Um, If uh, a captain throws his cargo overboard to save his ship from capsizing, is he forced to do so? So what are people's intuitions about those kinds of cases? So uh, jumping right into one of the scenarios that we used here, um, in one of the cases a chief orders the doctor against his will to prescribe a drug that will save a patient's life. what are subject's intuitions about whether the doctor was forced to do this? Was the doctor forced to save the patient's life? So we have an average judgment here that's sort of meaningless unless we compare it to another condition. Um, and the condition here is this time the, the chief of surgery at the hospital orders the doctor against his will to prescribe a drug that will kill the patient. I should say in both cases the doctor is described as not wanting to do what he's ordered to do. Um, and what we get here is a difference in judgments um, in terms of the extent to which the f- doctor was forced to do what he did. So relatively speaking, um subject stretch the doctor was forced to save the patient, but he wasn't forced to kill the patient. That is, he was free to do otherwise. He could have resisted what the chief ordered him to do. Now, even with this pair of judgments here, it's sort of hard to make sense of without some other sort of standard um, of measurement. And as many folks have... Um, talked about um, Alex and, and Regina and, and others um, morality is particularly tricky because it's hard to find some objective standard of measurement like Auntie said in his talk with, the, with something like the Mueller-Lyer illusion you can just take out a ruler and measure the lengths of the lines but it's a lot harder to find some similar standard of measurement like that in the case of morality so how do we know whether subjects are making an error here for these kinds of judgments Um, one possibility is to use a sort of standard of measurement from another domain like logic. Um, And so you might expect that if Y was forced by X, X also forced Y. Similarly, if Y was not forced by X then X did not force Y and so on. And so we could expect to see that pattern of judgments when we ask not about whether the doctor was forced, but whether the chief forced the doctor. Um, Or alternatively, I want to point out that these questions actually um, focus on different moral agents, one on the doctor and one on the chief, and these are both moral agents in the case that they do something that we can evaluate morally. And so another possibility is that even if we judge that Y was not forced by X, we might judge that X forced Y. Similarly, even if we judge that Y was forced by X, we might judge that X did not first Y. And that's the pattern that we find. So, what we find is that when, when we ask others, did the chief force the doctor? They judge that he forced the doctor to kill the patient, but he didn't force the doctor to save the patient. Um, I'll also point out that this difference is significant in the case of a morally bad action of killing um, and in the case of a morally obligatory action like saving the patient. So, again, just to Uh, just to hone in on this point, that she forced the doctor to kill the patient even though the doctor was not forced to kill the patient, that she did not force the the doctor to save the patient, but the doctor was forced to save the patient. So that was the basic pattern that we were trying to figure out, Um, and what we did next was to look not at a comparison of a morally bad and a morally good action, but just a morally bad and a morally neutral action. So do we see similarly weird patterns when we look at cases that aren't particularly morally relevant. So here's where we go back to Aristotle's case of the cargo. The non-moral case would be a case in which the captain orders a sailor to throw cargo overboard, not particularly moral, um, versus uh, the captain orders the sailor to throw passengers overboard. So was the sailor forced to throw the cargo or the passengers overboard? We find that the sailor was more forced to throw the cargo than the passengers overboard. Um, did the captain force the sailor to throw uh, cargo versus the passengers? And the captain forces the sailor more in the passengers than in the cargo case. But what I want to focus on here is this difference, um, again, for the morally relevant case here. So again, we see that the captain forces the, the sailor to throw the passengers. The sailor was not forced to throw the passengers. That's true in the morally relevant case. It's not true in the morally irrelevant case. So there's a difference here between how we make these judgments in the moral cases versus the non-moral cases. Um, Okay, so what I showed you was um, a morally neutral case and an immoral case. What I wanna show you now is whether this effect obtains differently for agents versus non-agents. So what I showed you before is whether the captain forced the sailor to throw cargo versus the passengers, but we could also ask about a non agentive entity, like whether the storm, Forced the sailor to throw the cargo or the passengers. Um, and that's the pattern that we get here. So the same um, basic pattern again, but this time I wanna point out that the captain forced the sailor to throw the passengers more than the storm did, even though that wasn't an overall main effect. It's not like in general, we attribute more force to agents than non-agents, because there's no difference in the case of the cargo, the non-moral case. So it's the same basic interaction pattern that we get here. Um, And then finally, there are a few more experiments that I can talk about, but this is, I think, the final one that I'll show you. Um, We wanted to look more closely at whether this is just an effect of bad and good outcomes, or whether it's uh, truly a moral scenario in the robust sense that I talked about at the beginning. And if it is, then it should matter whether the captain or the chief or whoever knows what they're doing or whether they don't know what they're doing. So if they know what they're doing, that's bad. If they don't know what they're doing, that's forgivable. So um, what we manipulated here is the chief's knowledge of what that drug uh, would do. So if, if you prescribe a, prescribe a drug that you think is gonna kill someone, that's bad. You don't know that's less bad. Um, so again, this is the case where he knows what it's going to do, and he um, more forces to kill him to save, but what if he doesn't know what it's gonna do? And in that case, we see no difference here of anything, the opposite trend. Um, so this uh, pattern suggests that it really is about the moral nature of the case and not simply the valence of the outcome. So again, there's no difference in here um, for judgments of saving, but there was a significant difference in the case of killing. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you uh, with that pattern and now move on to a final case of how we attribute uh, free will this time to conflicted conflicted agents. So this time again, um, like maybe Maureen would say, this is a traffic crash within the person rather than uh, between people. So it's not the case that someone is forcing you to do something you don't wanna do, like in the cases that I just showed you, but these are cases where you don't know what you wanna do. You're just internally conflicted, um, which maybe gets to uh, Anthony's talk and coherence yesterday uh, as well and, and issues of free will. Um, So these, again, are cases where agents have conflicting mental states, um, one of which might determine a particular action pattern. Okay, Um, just a little bit of the backstory on um, this particular set of experiments. Recently, again, as we talked about yesterday, uh, the question has come up of whether any of the neuroscientific evidence or psychological evidence on free will should impinge on our uh, intuitions about whether people have free will or not. This project isn't about whether people have free will, rather it's about people's intuitions about whether uh, people have free will and what are their intuitions about the kinds of evidence that would be threatening to free will. Um, so recently a paper by Eddie Namius, a philosopher at uh, Georgia State, uh, suggested that deterministic evidence, evidence that our actions are fully determined by our either neural or psychological states, um, that kind of evidence should only be threatening if our neurological states, our brain states, are thought to somehow bypass our psychological states. So what he uh, showed in, in a series of experiments is that when our psychological states, like our beliefs and our desires, are fully deterministic of our behavior, then we shouldn't, ha- we shouldn't feel threatened as far as our free will goes. And in fact, he shows that people don't find those kinds of deterministic accounts to be particularly threatening. Um, and what I wanted to do here is show that in some cases, people do find those accounts um, threatening. And in particular, they find those accounts threatening when people are described as internally conflicted. So I wanted to look at cases like these. So a case where a state of disgust uh, within somebody causes uh, a particular behavior, like causes her to cringe, causes her to wrinkle up her face. Did she cause her face to wrinkle up? Um, Or if a state of fear or anxiety within a person um, causes him to uh, behave in a certain way, say to breathe more quickly, Uh, does he cause his breathing to speed up? So those kinds of cases. Um, And I looked at uh, morally relevant cases like implicit attitudes and prejudice. So in one, kind, and again, what I'm gonna suggest is the key factor here is whether the agent endorses or rejects that psychological state that causes some behavior. Um, And again, the kinds of cases that I presented are these um, cases of of prejudice um, and implicit attitudes. So a person is described as feeling anxious around Muslims um, and then his breathing speeds up when he sees him as a Muslim man walking home at night, or a person feels disgusted about gay sex and then her face wrinkles up when he sees <coughs> her gay roommate having sex. Um, and the critical variable is gonna be whether that person endorses or rejects that psychological state that causes some behavioral pattern. So I'm gonna run you through an example of one of these. Suppose that Susan grew up in a very conservative household at the dinner table, her parents would talk about how awful and unnatural homosexuality was. Now Susan is in college. One day, Susan walks in on her gay roommate having sex with her girlfriend. As they look up at her face, Susan's face wrinkles up because she feels disgusted by gay sex. Did Susan cause her face to wrinkle up? And the key difference here is gonna be how she feels about that state. So in one case, she endorses that state. She doesn't have any friends who are gay. She thinks being gay is absolutely wrong. She opposes gay marriage and has participated in several rallies for a gay marriage ban. In the reject condition, she has many good friends who are gay. Uh, She thinks there's absolutely nothing wrong with being gay. She supports gay marriage and has participated in several rallies for gay rights. So that's the key difference. And the hypothesis is that um, when uh, Susan endorses her psychological state of disgust, she'll be judged as having caused her behavior. When she rejects that psychological state, she'll be judged as not having caused that behavior. Um, And the results uh, bear that prediction out. So Susan caused her action when she endorses the state but not when she rejects that state. Um, An alternative hypothesis, though, has to do with the kinds of evidence that um, I presented and that Maureen alluded to in terms of the NOVA effect and so on, so it could very well be the case that we attribute greater causal responsibility to agents um, not because of how they feel about their psychological states, but because their psychological states are morally salient, so maybe we Um, hold agents to be more causally responsible when when we hold them to be morally responsible, when they endorse or embrace homophobic or racist sentiments. Uh, And so what we wanted to do was look at um, non-moral cases to see whether the same pattern obtains for non-moral cases. So what about cases when agents feel disgusted by coffee? Uh, So here's that kind of case. Suppose Susan feels disgusted when she thinks about how coffee tastes. In fact, her stomach turns when she thinks about drinking coffee. In the case where she endorses that response, she's glad she doesn't like coffee. She has no desire to be a coffee connoisseur, and she thinks coffee would uh, keep her up at night. In the reject condition, she's upset she doesn't like coffee. She really wishes she could be a coffee connoisseur, and she thinks coffee would help her stay up at night. All right. Uh, And then one day, Susan's boyfriend urges her to give coffee another try. After one sip, her face wrinkles up because she feels disgusted by the coffee. Did Susan cause her face to wrinkle up? So the hypothesis here is exactly the same as before. Namely that when she endorses her response, we'll judge that she will ha- she, she caused her behavior. When she rejects that response, we'll judge that she didn't cause that behavior. And again, that's the pattern that we find for non-moral scenarios like we do for moral scenarios here. So really no difference between these kinds of cases. Um, I think these data suggest that internal conflict really matters. Um, but they still leave open some important questions. So one possibility is that we only judge that Susan caused her behavior when the psychological state causes her behavior in the case that she is explicitly described as actively endorsing that state, right? So when she acts in accordance with her second order desires or the desires of her so-called deep self, that's when we judge that she causes her behavior. Um, Similarly, we could only judge that Susan uh, doesn't cause the behavior caused by her psychological state when she actively rejects that state. Um, And again, this appeals to the concept of the deep self or second-order desires. People only cause the actions that are in accord with their second-order desires. Um, Or alternatively, like I'm suggesting, this effect could actually be due to the presence or absence of multiple competing psychological states. So if that's the case, um, then... We shouldn't judge that Susan causes her action caused by her psychological state only when she embraces that state. She could be simply indifferent to that state as long as there's no other competing psychological state we should judge that she causes that behavior. Um, Similarly, in the case of of active rejection, we shouldn't judge that she doesn't cause the behavior only when she actively rejects that state. What if she's simply confused about that state? So as long as there are multiple competing psychological states, one of which causes some behavior, we should judge that she doesn't cause that behavior. So to test uh, the strict uh, endorsement alternative, we tested an indifference uh, case where she just doesn't care that she doesn't like the coffee. And then for the strict rejection alternative, we tested a confusion case, so this time, she's no longer sure what she thinks about um, homosexuality, she's conflicted and confused and so on. Um, So what did we find here? Just like before, we found the same basic difference between endorse and reject. (coughs) You cause the actions that are caused by the states that you endorse versus reject. Um, But contrary to the strict endorsement hypothesis, we found no difference between endorsement and indifference conditions. So it didn't matter that you actively endorse the state. Even if you're just indifferent to that state, as long as there's no conflict, you're judged as having caused the action. And then contrary to the strict Uh, Rejection hypothesis, Um, you don't have to actively uh, reject the state. Even if you're just confused about it, you're judged as not having caused that action. So I think those data really speak to this uh, account of the presence or absence of multiple competing psychological states really mattering for how we think about agents as free or as having caused their actions and so on. Um, And I think that these findings might speak to... um, conceptions of the self and free will, I'm gonna borrow some terminology from Josh Nob and Sean Nichols. This is a paper they wrote on free will and the meds of the self that really inspired the current work. Um, what the data suggest is that people do recognize a psychological conception of the self um, in the absence of internal psychological conflict. The self is simply comprised of its psychological states, like what you think and feel and desire and intend and so on. Um, but in the case of multiple competing psychological states, one of which determines the behavior, people tend to think of the self as a sort of executive that can select among different states, but isn't necessarily located in any single one of the states. Um, these data also uh, point to the possibility that the self, the psychological self, is uh, free only insofar as it isn't conflicted. Um, I'm just citing a paper here by adding on kind of close calls and deliberation. So in the case of close calls, Um, Where you're not sure which thing to do, you're judged as relatively less uh, free. Um, And so I think this brings us in an interesting way uh, back to the trolley-type dilemmas. Um, Like all of us have, I think all of us would agree that if there's anything that the psychology and neuroscience of trolley-type dilemma judgment has taught us is that we are full of psychological conflict. In fact, we experience dilemmas precisely because we experience conflict between conflicting psychological and neurological systems, responses and so on. And so I think it's an interesting question whether moral agents in the midst of dilemmas are actually thought to be less free, to have less free will or freedom to do what they wanna do. Um, And so I think it'll be interesting in the future to look at the impact of these sort of dual or multi-process models on our intuitions about the, the free will uh, and folk psychology of moral agents. And I'll end with that. Thank you very much. Um,
1: I'll take the names down, and if you have a follow up, you could just make this sign introduced by Simon. So um, I don't know who was first. Should we start here?
2: So, this is uh, a thought about the case where uh, the doctor orders the yeah. person to save and then to kill.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the question is: the, the question is about force in both cases. Yeah. But I suspect we force is can be ambiguous, and we disambiguate it by. What so, to ask, so if we're asked whether the person was forced to kill the patient, well, being forced to do something functions as an excuse. So were we to agree that the person had been forced to kill, we have to be prepared to judge that, uh, that they were subject to an exculpatory that at least diminishes their responsibility in respect of killing. but we don't think in that case that you know being ordered to kill is, is sufficient as an excuse so we don't count that as force. In the case of the doctor, did the doctor uh, for use force or force the uh, other person uh, to save the patient? Maybe I think it, it an administrator and a doctor, is that what it is? A ch- the chief of surgery chief, and the chief. doctor yeah. Right. Hospital, so the yeah. Chief, right, so did the chief force the doctor to save the patient? Mm-hmm. Well, therefore, here in this case, it's force versus a justified use of authority, right? So uh, acting within your authority is contrasted by its very nature with force. That's, I mean, the whole idea of authority is in contrast with force. So if we're, it, of course, I mean, so we, well, if we assume she yeah. had the authority to order the uh, doctor to save the patient, then we don't say he forced him to do it because he ordered it, we're clocking things.
0: I mean, in Let's some see. sense, we're on the same page here. You're saying that the concept of force is tied to the concept of moral or legal permissibility or responsibility and so on. To that extent, I agree with you. These concepts are deeply linked in a way that we might not have expected.
2: What I'm saying, though, is the context shifts. So there's no... The
0: moral context shift, but that's it.
2: Yeah, and so that when you say, well, was the person... I mean, we we use different criteria to decide whether the doctor was forced and whether the... uh, chief force the doctor. Okay, so I think there's
0: a sense in which we agree and a sense in which we disagree. So, And and there are various pieces of your point. So one piece that I want to take up is whether when they're evaluating the doctor, they're sort of using the force question as a way to express their moral approval Mm -hmm. or disapproval. So if I if I allow myself myself to say that the doctor was forced, then I can't hold him responsible for what he did, and I want to be able to hold him responsible. And in one sense, I agree with you. That seems to be exactly what subjects are doing. They're being motivated by their moral judgment, their moral intuition in this case, and then changing the way that they think about force in that case. Um, one thing that I should say is that there's a control that we did, which was to, in one case, give subjects the opportunity to first express their moral judgment, their moral disapproval, to see whether that then alleviated their judgment of force, right? To show them that these are distinct judgments. You can judge someone as morally responsible, but also judge that they were forced to do that bad thing. Um, That didn't change the pattern of judgments that we saw. But going back to the first point, where I think we're actually on the same page, is that in both cases, both in judging the chief and in judging the doctor, I think it's actually the same factor that is impinging on people's judgments of force and free will and that is the moral nature of the actions. There's one more experiment that I think is probably worth showing you guys and it's this, um, it's this experiment here where this time we didn't change, we didn't actually change um, the, the facts of the case or the features of the case. Um, I don't know what's going on there, huh? Well, I guess I can't show you the data, but you can trust me when I tell you what they are. Um, Let's see. Um, What we did here was change the focus of the agent, but within the text of the scenario. So again, all of the facts are the same, but we just said the word sailor more times or said the word captain more times. And that in and of itself led to a significant difference here. So asking the same exact question this time, right? So we're not changing now the focus in the question. Right. It's just the number of instances in which we met, mentioned right. captain or sailor, and that leads to a significant difference. So it's not just our interpretation of the word force with respect to the question about the doctor. Was the doctor force? and with respect to the captain, did the captain force the sailor? It's this specific, and in this point we agree, it's this feature of moral salience that alters how we interpret the question. But it's not a difference in the, the, the phrasing of the you know, active and passive format of the question. It's specific to the contribution of moral motivation to how we interpret this question about force.
1: Okay,
0: Dan?
3: I had a question about the the group minds research, Um, and now I I just I take it that what you're really measuring is something like uh, autonomous agency or something like that, rather than that maybe it's not so plausible that people are thinking that what McDonald's employees uh, have, you know. Yeah or less fully embedded in the world of the mental, um, uh, and, um, but the interesting thing. So you found that uh, individual. So uh, the the responsibility of the group uh, increased with cohesiveness, and but individual responsibility for the members did not, or, or yeah. did not decline. Um, and I'm very curious. I assume this hasn't been done cross culturally. I'm very curious whether. Wow you would get different results say in India um, or in other cultures where maybe people would be, uh, Americans in particular are fixated on this notion of individual responsibility. We get very kind of freaked out at any suggestion that uh, uh, collective responsibility might mitigate individual responsibility. Yeah,
0: that's a really interesting set of points and there's a lot to say here. Um, I'll take the kind of methodological points first though. So. Um, I want to clarify that here when we're asking about people, it's pretty hard to drive people's judgments down from the ceiling when I'm just asking, how responsible are you for some individual action? Um, Particularly described in these abstract terms, people think that people should be responsible for whatever their own actions are. Um, That's sort of why we turn to fish. And the other reason why we turn to the fish is because people might have these concepts about McDonald's, right, that might be driving their judgments about these particular groups. Um, And in the fish case, we actually do see the trade-off in responsibility track with the trade-off in mind. So these are, how responsible are individual fish for their individual actions, right? So it's a little bit easier to elicit variable judgments in those cases, and that variability and responsibility for members seems to track with mind, right? So now this time we have the same group group member mind trade-off. Um, it'd be more compelling if we found it for people, too. The final um, methodological point there is that another experiment that I didn't show you is one where we took groups of people, um, but arbitrary groups of people that we constructed. So student organizations like the jazz club, the debate team, the, the soccer team, whatever, and then just manipulated how cohesive they they seem to the subject. So everyone in the team is from Michigan or people on the team are from all over the place. Um, and we got the same basic pattern. Now, I think it'd be really, really interesting to do this cross-culturally, and, and we've talked to folks in China about doing this. Um, the cheap and easy way to do it is on Turk, which we tried to do to see whether um, people from India um, attribute more mind to the group, to the collective, um, and whether you know, that drives their difference of responsibility. We didn't actually see that kind of variability that we predicted, but we didn't, I mean, we, sh- we should really be designing a different experiment to test that hypothesis. Um, I think it also relates to all sorts of interesting trade-offs between moral norms, like between justice versus loyalty, for instance, or, or fairness versus loyalty. So um, in collaboration with Adam and also my grad student, um, we're looking at whistleblowing behavior and that kind of trade-off. And, um, whether attributions of group mind uh, are at play there. yeah. Um, you have a follow-up?
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I missed the beginning of that dialogue. How about it's overlapping with that? I'm <coughs> uh, wondering if, if you had any hunch of what people are talking about when they attribute responsibility to the fish in the first place. Uh, I mean, you usually yeah, think of it as, as a fitting as praise and play, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Is it you know, maybe they're just thinking, you know, they somehow causally responsible for, say, where, where they go. Well, if they part of the group, well, then they just, you know, there's no individualizing the, individual, in the lobes of the causal. They're all responding together.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't know. We didn't ask people. Um, we also didn't ask about praise or blame or moral responsibility in this instance. We just asked about responsibility. So it could very easily be a different kind of responsibility Puzzle responsibility
1: for when where it is going in yeah. this frame. Yeah. Yeah. Follow up or? I mean, it's your turn
4: anyway. okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, thank you for your talk. I think a lot of your research will really raise some interesting questions, but let me try to. Understand what the question is, and what they think about this, and then they jump on whatever kind of key they can get. For example, captainship and the next class. Let me illustrate this two things. First, group bikes, what we so have this. Mm-hmm. If you would ask me, does McDonald's have a group bikes? I would not really know what, what we're talking about. I would, is say something like group spirit, or something like alien, <laughs> you know, objective yeah. spirit, or what? What is the question? <laughs> yeah. uh, do we talk about influence? I wouldn't really know, but then I would come up, you know, with some kind of a hypothesis, but you might.
0: Um, you've given me a lot to think about um, and I have tried to take notes on the various points that I want to that I want to try to address so um, the last thing that you said sort of captures it which is are we asking these intentionally vague and ambiguous questions to get the data that we want and if so what do the data mean given that we're asking such ambiguous questions a charitable way of putting that is that we're going for boundary cases we're going for ambiguous cases in order to elicit the right kind of variability So starting with the last thing first, the the case of whether we cause our own actions, right? These boundary cases of of wrinkling up the face, like why didn't I just choose intentional acts like speech acts or raising my hand, cases like that. Well, first of all, you're right. I think that people would be at ceiling for attributing, attributing intentionality in those cases. And in fact, what people find is that we have a bias to over attribute intentionality across the board, even for cases of accidents, right? So I couldn't use those kinds of cases if I thought that there was some critical variability in the conflict cases that I wanted to get at. Um, the study that inspired those experiments, uh, the one that I alluded to by, by Josh Nob and Sean Nichols, is, was a really interesting one and, and what's, what got me thinking about these boundary cases. So the case that they describe one like this, um, Bob is very anxious about asking his boss for a promotion, so his hand starts trembling. Um, his hand starts trembling so much that he knocks over a glass of water. Did Bob cause the glass of water to spill? Yes, he did. Did Bob cause his hand to tremble? Well, I'm not sure, but it's weird because the only thing that differs between the, those two cases, they're, I mean, it's the same case, but just whether you're zooming in or out on Bob. And when you zoom in on Bob, did Bob cause something in his own body to happen? Then your intuitions start to get a little bit fuzzy. And what I wanted to figure out is, why are those intuitions fuzzy? Are they fuzzy across the or Are they fuzzy in these particular cases? Even when you zoom in on a mental state, if it doesn't conflict with another mental state, then perhaps that's, what dri- that's what's driving these intuitions. So it's not just that I want to show that people's judgments are fuzzy, but they're, they're systematically different. And I don't want to just say that they're biased or that they're erroneous, but they're, they're being driven by these very subtle principles. Um, so that's, that's the point about um, causing your own behavior and, and those kinds of boundary cases. With respect to um, the captain and the ship case, which is the first thing that you mentioned at the beginning of your question, um, I think it's really important there to note that people are being perfectly logical and, ra- logical and rational um, by their own mights. Uh, in cases when we're not asking about um, agents, in cases when we're not asking about, a- and, and even in cases when we're asking about agents but they don't have the relevant knowledge, or in cases when we're asking about non-agents but they're, they're producing the same sorts of effects in the world, and so I don't think that it's a failure on our subjects part of interpreting the questions that they're ask- that we're asking because they're showing perfectly reasonable patterns of explanation for all of these other cases. Um, that are in fact quite similar to the moral cases that are in question. Um, So I think that's worth noting, that our subjects are very smart and sophisticated and able to deal with these so-called ambiguous questions that we're asking. Um, And then finally, the mind question is actually one in which I don't think that uh, that we are presenting subjects with ambiguous questions. And the reason for that is precisely what you mentioned, which is, how are we supposed to interpret what you mean by mind? So we actually give a little preamble here, right, about what we mean by mind—the capacity for intention, planning, cognition, memory, emotion, complex feelings. Will its vary? Groups? I think there may have even been a, a further preamble in the introduction about how, you know, research has shown that like there's there there are different kinds of mind out there. You know, babies might have this kind of mind but not that kind, and so on. And so. We usually resist giving that kind of rich uh, theoretical interpretation to our subjects for fear they might overinterpret. But I think that was useful in this case here. So it was a combination of providing people with a rich explanation of mine and then giving them these sparse groups over a number of different experiments. Sorry, I couldn't see. Oh, was there any follow-up question? Okay, Maureen?
5: Yeah. Play-tope. Yeah, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, sorry. So. At least in the we'll so. Yeah. Because I saw you mention there are a few of uh, Frank groups. So I wondered what, what uh, in that context, was the new mm-hmm. aspect in that one, if we got to the make-up phase. I was curious, um, what, what exactly are so, so uh, do you Mm-hmm. Uh, and you add to it, but still uh, even if she wouldn't, she wouldn't have wrinkled her face. Even if she wouldn't have what? Eng uh, opposition to gay marriage. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. And then I wonder whether it would still matter whether they ignores uh, it or not. Yes, yeah, okay. So yeah. What's happening yeah. exactly there? So there so there are two
0: there are two kinds of questions here. Um, so the first is just um, what's new about this theory. There may not be anything new, and it's possible that I just don't know the literature well enough. From my reading of the literature, though, there is something both in the new, the sort of newer, more recent philosophy that I've read in the, in the ancient works um, about the deep self and second-order desires which I've alluded to here. So the idea is that the conflict itself is conflicted only insofar as an agent endorses or and rejects some seats that are within the agent. So you have different desires, and you can prioritize these desires in different ways, and if those desires conflict, then you are seen as not being free. Now, I think that's part of it, but I want to go beyond sort of the second-order desire. So the fact that I don't want to feel a certain way, I don't want to feel fear at a particular race or anxiety at a particular interaction, I don't want to feel nervous when I ask my boss for a promotion and so on. Um, I don't think it's just that, right? And I don't think it's wanting to be a certain way that drives our intuitions about causality, right? So if that were the case, then mere indifference shouldn't, there should be no difference between the indifference and the confusion because second order desires are simply missing there. There is no deep self to speak of in those cases. Um, And so my understanding, but correct me if I'm wrong, of the previous literature is that it was really this notion of the deep self and second order desires that was underlying the overall notion of conflict. And for me, I think it's just conflict. And you might get these other results out of conflict, um, but you don't need those layers actually. You strip them away, you still get the, the same kind of effect What also speak to that, although I don't know if I have the slides here. No, I don't. Um, That's not relevant, so I should take it away. Um, Okay, uh, is that attitude of strength um, doesn't actually account for (coughs) either. So you might think that to to the extent that. Just telling you so and so wishes they didn't feel that way or whatever, maybe they're a little bit less disgusted by the thing that I'm telling you. And I'm not again, I'm not showing you those results because I don't have them in this side, but um, that in and of itself is not driving the effect. So it's not just my inference about how disgusted you feel or how much you must like or dislike the coffee that is driving the effect. So it's something kind of lower level than that. Yeah, there's a
1: follow-up. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I remember something you said, so maybe what I'm saying, you did, did anyone look at Huckleberry things, Talisman? because that seems Isn't to suggest yeah. exactly the opposite mm-hmm. of um, the view you're getting at that, You know, uh, someone's been taught that most things are bad, whatever, then that things that I, they should be hostile, hate using yeah. and then, in one case they see you know, a boosting baby and they frown and um, feel content. But in the other case, despite their best will, they smile and, and feel this warm feeling. Right. Uh, I think if the Hackelberry kind of intuition is alright, then people would say in in positive kind of case that they're actually causing causing a smile, the pile, which would that's have, interesting. and that's a conflict kind of situation.
0: Yeah, I haven't looked at the positive case. My understanding of the Hut ha- case is that that's about moral responsibility and not causal responsibility, and also our kind of thick notion of value, um, that actually what an agent truly values can't be bad, um, and also that to the extent that he does something that we actually value as good, then he's responsible and praiseworthy and so on. Um, But I think this is worth following up on because I Uh, think the moral valence might actually be an interacting factor with conflict.
1: Describe responsibility because you attribute
2: the act to the person, so-called attributability.
4: Well, it
0: depends on whether you're attributing moral responsibility or causal responsibility, right? But I I think you're right that valence might actually interact with conflict in some meaningful way. to the extent that we don't think someone can truly value racism, that might actually modulate our inference of the degree to which they feel conflicted. Like maybe we think someone is less conflicted if the conflict is cashed out in these opposite terms because we wouldn't experience that conflict, yeah. That makes sense. Nice. Gina? So,
1: let make you go back to your slides again uh, I'm really fascinated by the group line stuff, mm-hmm. so am I going back to that? Mm-hmm. 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 Particular, mm-hmm. yeah. so, um, so, I'm really fascinated by this. I think this is a really, really, really interesting question. I'm really glad you're doing this. But I, I guess I want to reprise some of the words that, that Christopher said yeah. about how soldiers are interpreting this. And what I want to draw attention to is the member mind mm-hmm. responses, because mm-hmm. that's a crazy question, I think. I, um, given the, this background you gave them and what yeah. you need, I have in mind. So, could you go back to the instructions? Oh, yeah. Um, that would be helpful. the instructions you gave in the way you described it, it, just sounds crazy to ask people, do the members of these different groups have minds in this sense? Mm-hmm. And the fact that you get any variability at all in this suggests that something weird is going on. And I don't think it's that your subjects are crazy, mm-hmm. or that they're having strange responses. I think that they are going through the following thought process. You're asking this apparently crazy question. It's, it, it's bizarre to think that someone would actually think that members of these groups, to varying degrees, have cognition or emotion, mm-hmm. have it at all. Um, and so you must be asking something else. You mm-hmm. must mean something else mm-hmm. by this question. Mm-hmm. Subjects are assuming that basically you're pragmatically implicating that you want them to answer some different question than the one you're literally asking them. A um, is that? That's a
2: relevance bias. So the fact that you provide yeah. this yeah. instruction okay. that could have
1: influenced the behavior. Influence mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. So so it's I mean, you say a lot take the questions literally but I'm not mm-hmm. I just don't buy the that of doing that mm-hmm. I think we are doing something else they're assuming you mean something metaphorical so think about so so if, if we grab that and the fact that you get variance at on the member mind suggests yeah. that there, there's something weird going on but the fact that it's not consistent across
0: so this is something. this is really interesting. Sure.
1: I to oh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, which is that once we have some evidence that they're doing something other than giving, taking it literally like you want them to, yeah. I now want to know what kind of metaphor they're using to understand the question about the groups. Mm-hmm. So when you ask, does Bank of America have a mind of its own, I think they're, they're, again, looking, searching for a metaphor. And they're thinking of things like when you talk about, my hand keeps moving. It must have a mind of its own. Or, you know, mm-hmm. that, that car started sort of rolling down the hill. It's like it's got a mind of its own. It's errant. Yeah. It's acting in a way that's unpredictable and controllable. And I wonder if that's all your subjects are doing, is thinking that that's what you're asking about groups.
0: That groups in general are... Okay, so this is interesting. So, it's funny, because I had the opposite intuition, which is that I think all the time that there's variability in the degree to which people are capable of planning, the degree to which people remember things, the degree to which people are capable of complex thought. Um, And we're capitalizing on that quite natural variability. And it's not even variability in people's inferences about these things. It's just variability, and one of the studies that I didn't show you capitalizes on that actual variability, like our ability to remember our own thoughts versus other people's thoughts. For instance, it turns out there's huge individual variability, and not like subjects know about that kind of research, but I think subjects in general have this intuition, if the data are real, that people can vary in their abilities to take action, to plan for the future, and so on. So one other set of studies that I want to talk about um, that I didn't get a chance to is one on intergroup conflict and group mind and individual mind. So it turns out, and maybe this will like juice people's intuitions a bit more, that Democrats think that the Republican Party has an agenda, has a plan, has a mind, Mm -hmm. that each individual Republican is a mindless follower. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that they, and same goes for Democrats, on, on Re- Republicans and Democrats and the U.S. Army thinking about the Taliban and, and well, not vice versa in this case. But um, I don't think that subjects are trying to figure out what on earth we mean when we say, to what extent does a Republican have a mind of its own or are they just a mind of follower? We didn't put it in those words. that just kind of describing the results. Um, but I wonder if you can tell me how we could have phrased this question so that you would be convinced.
1: So I, I'm not exactly sure. And this is why, I mean, this is why I, I'm not happy with the question I'm asking you, because I think this is really interesting, but I don't know how to fix it. But, but I think you've identified actually two different questions you could be asking them. One is to uh, estimate to what extent these people excel in their capacities mm-hmm. for memory and emotion and so forth, mm-hmm. and estimate to what extent they have independent will separate from their group. And these are two distinct questions. Yes, and the fact that, that there's no control here for which one subjects are using means already we really don't know how to interpret their results and that makes me worry right. about so all of the responses to all these questions that are done in this context. So a reviewer
0: actually brought up that point um, and that's actually why we ran um, that other study that unfortunately I don't have the slides for here on the organization. So in that study, so what they complain about in particular was that this concept could be just independent thinking, mind of its own. So why do you keep using mind of its own, right? That's not just mind, that's something else, it's independent mind. Um, so in that study, we, we, we struck out mind of its own and just used mind. And actually, we stripped out this, this stuff and got the same basic pattern. Um, that's the first point. But the second, I think, maybe more substantive point that um, really needs to be explored further is what does it mean for you to attribute mind to a group Um, One way to this problem is to look at the consequences of that kind of judgment. So are there any consequences downstream of that judgment that are informed by the initial judgment of a group mind? I think to the extent that group responsibility patterns with group mind and individual responsibility patterns with individual mind in the cases where individual responsibility is variable, um, that gives us a clue that these judgments can't be purely arbitrary. That And remember, these are correlations across groups, not just within individuals, right? So there's something about the group mind that is tracking with the judgment about that group's responsibility for mm-hmm. collective actions. So, I mean, that's just one other kind of judgment. It happens to be something that we're really interested in. But I agree with you that it, if it were just the group mind judgment floating on its own, if it's Or floating on its own without judgments of member mine, or floating on its own without downstream consequences like maybe responsibility judgments. They'd be more difficult to interpret. I think they're still difficult to interpret. Something else that we've been doing in this intergroup conflict project is to see whether um, judgments of mine are elicited by different motivations. So it turns out that we attribute mine to our in-groups, to our own political parties, um, in cases when we want to affiliate with our group. So the need for affiliation tracks with my attribution in those cases, but our uh, desire to attribute mine to the outgroup actually tracks with what we call affective motivation. So our ability, or our desire to predict what that group is going to do to us. Um, and so there are definitely di- very different contexts in which we attribute mine not just to groups versus individuals, but even different kinds of groups, like in-groups and outgroups um, and so on, and different kinds of minds. So it turns out that when we dehumanize outgroups, we dehumanize them in terms of experience, not agency. Right here, we're mostly asking about agency. But when we want to affiliate with our in-group, the kind of mind we're attributing to our in-group is experience and agency. Um, so there are a lot of different pieces here that we're trying to figure out that I think are going to help us interpret what it means to attribute mind to a group. Um. Okay. okay, thank you much.